Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Nice to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand podcast. Tons of stuff to get through today. As always, we won't get through it, but I know on your agenda, you want to look at the Exchequer returns published on last Friday, showing once again bumper tax revenues and accompanied now by all of the usual, it happens every single time, warnings that they were full of one-offs, things that will never be repeated. This is as good as it gets, type warnings from the Department of Finance and journalists. I want to talk about a lot of US economic data that has emerged in recent days and weeks and what that has done to the very, very important uh, outlook for US interest rates as we head into a series of central bank meetings over the next week or two. We have the Fed next week in particular. Uh, there's lots going on in the UK Keir Starmer seems to be doubling down all the time on his we're never going to get close to the EU shtick. Uh, I think that's absolutely disgraceful and a very wrong-headed policy, and I'd like to talk about that. I know you've got some stuff to say about a raft of EU economic data that's been released in the last while. I want to talk about currencies. Has the dollar peaked is one question I think that is very pertinent. There's an awful lot going on in China. And if we have time, I'd like to go through a little bit of that. The energy crisis rumbles on. There is a big debate going on amongst all sorts of different experts, best encapsulated by essentially the debate that's going on between the Economist newspaper and the Financial Times. 
The Economist is forecasting that next winter is going to be absolutely dreadful, that the energy crisis will really bite next winter, winter, and it is all doom and gloom. The FT has been much more optimistic than that, I think, for very good reasons. And there's some remarkable data to talk about, about how the EU seems to be coping with the energy crisis. Relatedly, we've got the EU complaining like mad about the Inflation Reduction Act in the States, which is very badly named because the thing that they're complaining about is not the inflation reduction bit, but contained within that act, Biden's latest policy uh, proposal, is a huge raft of subsidies to green energy, green tech, if you like. And the EU is clearly worried that US companies are going to be placed at a big advantage relative to European green tech companies. And indeed, that some of those companies might move to the states because of those government subsidies that are going to be offered in the United States. There's an interesting article about this published recently by Martin Sandbu, a guy we quote often on this podcast in the FT, and he has some pithy advice for the EU and suggests that they should not be moaning quite so much and should get off their backsides and do something themselves. We've got a lot to get through there. We probably won't, as we usually or always never do. But I'll hand back to you and just take us through your perspective on those exchequer returns, the bumper tax revenues and all those warnings that it'll never happen again. Good afternoon, Chris. Good to talk. Um, Well done on your podcast with Noah Smith on Friday night. Thank you. Um, Sorry, I couldn't make it. Um, Just the time difference just didn't work for me for various reasons. Hopefully we'll get him again. I'd like to be involved. It was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I must say I loved every minute of it. It's it's a privilege to be able to speak to a true, smart, intellectual person, people, a person who is, you know, really, really, really smart and also a very nice guy. Yeah, and lives lives in one of my favorite cities, San Francisco. So all good. The exchequer returns, Chris, for the first 11 months of the year were phenomenal. November is an incredibly important month because self-employed tax returns, corporate tax take are always really, really interesting to watch during that month. It's an incredibly important month. We collected 77.5 billion in taxation. That's up 24.5% on the same period last year. So that translates into increased tax take of 15.2 billion. It is absolutely phenomenal. Income tax continues to grow very strongly, 28.3 billion up 15.6% on last year. That's 3.8 billion. The whole focus in relation to the Irish public finances tends to be on what's happening on the corporation tax side, but the income tax story is still incredibly powerful and compelling. The buoyancy we're seeing is remarkable. That is reflecting the fact, as I've said many times, the strong, ongoing, strong growth in the in employment, the pickup we're seeing in wages, but also the quality of the employment we're creating is really, really strong. And because of the very progressive income tax system that we have, that translates directly into income tax revenue buoyancy. The second largest category is corporation tax, 21.1 billion collected. 10 years ago, we were collecting 4 billion. That is up 56% on last year or 7.6 billion. And corporation tax accounted for 27.5% of the total tax take. That 
five or six years ago was down around 15, 16%. And 10 years ago, I think was down around 10%. So the whole corporation tax story is absolutely phenomenal. We had a budget surplus in the first 11 months of 12.1 billion. That compares to a deficit of one and a half billion in the same period last year. So there's been a turnaround of 13.6 billion. And of course, as you mentioned, the Department of Finance and others are coming out issuing all of the warnings at the moment that the surplus will end the year lower because December is a big spending month, particularly on the social welfare side, but also the cost of living package that was introduced on the budget on September 27th. A lot of those measures will be implemented in December. So they expect spending to increase significantly in that month and that the deficit will, or sorry, the surplus will be lower. But, you know, they they continue to protest about this and they're also now publishing figures they say Without the windfall corporation tax receipts, what would the situation be like? And obviously, um, the situation is very different if you strip out a lot of those corporation tax receipts. But the bottom line at the moment is that the Irish economy really is, and I use a term I've used many times on this podcast, it really is a mean, lean, green tax generating machine at the moment and it goes back to reminds me of another point that i consistently make about the importance of economic activity in generating tax revenues without a functioning economy you will not generate the tax revenues that fund everything else that goes on in our economy and our society particularly social protection expenditure so i and the warning there of course is that whoever get holds power in this country over the coming years, it will be so important to make sure that this functioning business model is kept functioning as efficiently as possible, because that is what generates the tax revenues that facilitate everything else in our economy and our society. So it's an ongoing, very, very strong, positive story. One of the things that strikes me about that in technical terms is that nobody seems to know what the ending of Uh, capital allowances, which were introduced a few years ago on intellectual property, and they might actually lead to higher revenues once those allowances roll off over the next year or two. So I think forecasts of where corporation tax revenues will go over the next couple of years are couched in even more uncertainty than usual, and that we may yet again be surprised. But it has to be said that the actual profit space of a lot of these companies in the tech sector as you have rightly said, not in the pharma or chemical sector, but in the tech sector, the profits are stagnant to falling in, in many cases. It's not that these companies are becoming unprofitable. It just seems that the era of very rapid growth, at the very least, is over. So that is one reason for, for caution, at least to expect no more rapid growth in tax revenues. But there are things going on underneath the bonnet that leads me to think that we could still be pleasantly surprised next year. But I put my hands up and I say that if I was building models of this, I think that uh, I would couch them in all of the usual caveats and more. One of the things that I want to move on to, Jim, is talking about the various bits of economic data that have come out of the states in recent times. This is important for a whole host of reasons, not least for any of our listeners that are interested in their pension savings or other form of savings that they might have, either just in simple bank deposits for interest rates or in the stock market for their long-term savings, because everything at the moment, day to day, week to week, even month to month, movements in those interest rate deposits that you might get and also your stock market savings is, is totally dependent on the data coming out of mostly the United States. 
And the situation there is very, very confused. We've got all of the forecasts for imminent recession. And there are financial market indicators of that, uh, the most prominent being something called the yield curve, which is the difference between short term and long term interest rates. You look at that and that is unambiguously forecasting a US recession. If you look at stock market indicators of where the economy is going, a favorite of many analysts is the behavior of consumer cyclical stocks versus what are called consumer staples. So that's the difference between things people have to buy versus things that people might buy if they're feeling flush. And consumer staples, the things that people have to buy, have been doing much, much better than consumer cyclicals or consumer discretionary the optional consumer items, the stock, the companies that supply those sorts of goods are be doing much worse in share price terms than their consumer staple counterparts. So wherever you look, there are indicators that the economy is uh, in trouble and uh, real interest rates, in, interest rates adjusted in, for inflation, which we do have exact measures of in the States via something called the index linked treasury market or TIPS, They've been falling again. So, and when real bond yields fall, that's an indicator that people are expecting real growth to fall. And yet we have last week very strong employment numbers out of the States, stronger than expected wage data out of the States. Today, just before we came on air, the US Services Purchasing Manager Index went up to 56.5 from 54.4 last time which says that the all-important service sector of the US economy, much bigger than the manufacturing sector, is in rude health. So this is a, a very, very mixed picture, which complicates the Fed's task enormously. And you've got people like Larry Summers, who very correctly forecast that inflation wouldn't be temporary, saying that the market is getting completely wrong on the future of interest rates. Now, interest rate expectations over the course of the last month have actually come down a little, not much, but from they still expect a peak of around 5% in the States and then cuts, cuts in US interest rates through the second half of next year as this weaker inflation story that people expect and the recession comes to pass. And Summers is saying it ain't going to happen like that. So I, I've never known such diametrically opposed forecasts and expectations for the US economy. It's, it's really tricky. And I suspect that the only conclusion that one would arrive from all of that is that the Fed is just going to be very, very data dependent. It's not going to base anything on what they think is going to happen. They're going to look at what actually is happening and be very reactive to that because the outlook, even much more than usual, is so uncertain. Do you think that's a fair summary, Jim? Yeah, I think it is a fair summary. The Federal Reserve meets next Tuesday, Wednesday, the 13th and 14th, and the interest rate decision on the Wednesday night. Lots of confusing data, as you say, facing them. You know, you have what the markets are saying, and you also have the real economic data releases coming out, which you've said are still pretty upbeat, the employment and services sector today. So it's a, it's a confusing story. The, the consensus has been definitely moving towards all three major central banks, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve, moving back from 75 basis point increases to 50 basis points next week. Um, and I would believe certainly that to be the case for the European Central Bank, most probably the Bank of England, not sure about the Federal Reserve at this stage. Um, if, if you look at how all of this 
feeds into exchange rate markets. Um, at the other, across the Atlantic, we've seen a number of data releases out of Germany and the euro area over the last couple of days. Uh, the German export performance down 0.6% in October following a 0.7% decline in September. Uh, German exporters are certainly feeling the chill winds of reduced global economic demand, particularly out of China, because Germany sells a lot of manufacturing exports into that country. And we do know that the Chinese economy is losing a lot of momentum, has been facing significant challenges. Uh, today, we had retail sales data. There was a decline of 1.8% in retail sales during the month, with Germany down by 2.8% and France down by 2.7%. So that does mark a significant weakening of Eurozone consumer spending. And no major surprises there in the sense that rising interest rates, the cost of living crisis. And we have discussed numerous times um, European Central Bank interest rate policy. You know, the fact that inflation is normally caused by excess demand. And when there's excess demand, you increase interest rates. You take money out of people's pockets. You take money out of business pockets. Demand slows down consumer spending and business investment, and that brings price inflation back under control, or at least that's part of the theory. Um, but it's it's been very clear to me anyway, certainly, and I think you as well, that the inflation problem in the eurozone has very little to do with excess demand. So increasing interest rates in this environment is just going to force a lot more economic pain than is necessary. And it would appear that is that is starting to materialize in terms of consumer behavior. But if you put together what's happening on the US side with still reasonably healthy levels of economic activity on many fronts, you look at Europe very definitely slowing down, possibly not by as much as people had been expecting, but still a slowdown in activity in overall terms. And yet we've seen the euro strengthen appreciably against the dollar over the last couple of months. Um, euro dollar was down at, I think, 96 there not too long ago. It's at just over 105 today. So the euro is staging a remarkable comeback. And that's happening in an environment where it seems clear that US rates are going to rise by more than European rates, that the US economy is still outperforming the Eurozone economy, and yet the euro is strengthening against that sort of background. What is that telling us about the dollar? Is it that the dollar down at 96, 97 was just grossly overvalued? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, I'm in North America at the moment, as you know, Jim. In Canada, actually. 
um, which is a country very linked to the dollar. And I was in the States a few weeks ago. And my experiences of what things cost over here tell me a few things. Yes, there has been inflation. There is inflation here, clearly. Um, Things are very expensive relative to my last trip. But the other factor that, of course, makes it seem expensive to me, even more so than just caused by that domestic inflation in Canada and the States, is the dollar. The conclusion I reached from, particularly from my trip to the States, is that the dollar is massively and egregiously and ridiculously overvalued. Its long march upwards over the last while has taken it to levels that are just unsustainable from uh, what we call economic fundamentals. So I came back from my trip from the States urging people to think that the dollar was close to a peak. I wasn't going to forecast that it was at it. By sheer coincidence, that sort of recommendation so far has proved correct. I don't know whether it will continue to do so, but the dollar is overvalued. That it, it, The momentum trade, as it's called in financial markets, has taken it to levels far beyond anything that was justified by those interest rates that you just referred to there, by any other measure of fundamental value that we economists use. So I think the dollar is a very expensive currency. And over a period of time, which I cannot be precise about, it is going to fall simply because it is such an overvalued price. At the end of the day, I do think fundamentals matter occasionally, not very often. They didn't matter when they took the dollar to its unsustainable level. And that's because everybody piled into what is called a momentum trade. It's a well-established fact in financial markets that if you If you're a trend follower, sometimes you can make a lot of money quite independent of whatever thoughts you might or might not have about the economic fundamentals or about whether the asset, the dollar in this case, but it could be share prices, house prices, price of fine art or wine. Momentum can sometimes be your friend. There's an old, old cliche called the trend is your friend. Oh, you took the words out of my mouth. I was just reminiscing here. And when we worked together in the dealing room, Bank of Ireland, there was a trader in there and his mantra always was the trend is your friend and that works most of the time sorry a lot of the time not necessarily most of the time it's a puzzle academics say it shouldn't happen uh, but nevertheless it is a real phenomenon which smart traders like our old friend uh, do manage to exploit and i wonder whether the trend in the dollar has turned it's a question i don't have an answer it will do. I'm quite convinced that if it hasn't already, then it has turned and that the dollar does deserve to go down on all of those Chris, fundamental can, things. Can, can I ask you, is 115, 120 euro dollar a realistic target? Yes, I think so. If it was in the 120s, I think that would represent much better value relative to where it should be. Mm. Um, that's the, I don't think that it's uh, going to be an absolutely massive move all the way back to 140 or 150. That isn't warranted by the fundamentals. But certainly... A another 10 to 20 percent rise in the dollar euro would be the sort of thing that I would have in mind that once it reached that sort of level, I would say, yeah, we're back to something approaching sensible valuation. Um, so that over time is where I think it will go. OK, I hope you're right, because I have to plan a trip to the States early in the new year. So please don't dollar... ever base your personal financial decisions on anything that I have to say, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I am a podcaster rather than a professional investor is because I'm no good at that sort of thing. There is tentative evidence in the States that inflation has peaked. And one of the key drivers of inflation, of course, on both sides of the Atlantic has been energy prices, particularly oil and gas prices. Petrol prices, or gas prices, as we say confusingly in the States. Petrol prices in the States are now lower than they were the day before Putin invaded Ukraine. Now, of course, that's not true in Europe because of the uh, dollar, that exchange rate again. 
uh, they don't have to worry about the, the exchange rate because oil is priced in dollars. But because of that fall in the oil price back to about $80 a barrel, um, petrol prices are now uh, cheaper than they were before Putin in- invaded. And I don't think anybody expected that as we approach the end of 2023. And that's one of the reasons why people think that inflation has peaked in the States. There are other indicators. All of that supply side, supply chain inflation seems to be dissipating rapidly. You mentioned German exports and world trade generally there. There are now uh, logistics companies saying that uh, the price of shipping a container around the world has collapsed. uh, Sailings, actual ships are being trips are being cancelled and ships are sailing empty. And so those sorts of logistic companies are reporting severe uh, weakness in global trade, which is another one of those things that I I guess we need to monitor very, very closely. Yeah, sorry, I just want to say we saw over the weekend a $60 cap being placed on Russian oil. And the basis of the logic behind that is that they want to squeeze Russia's revenue by prohibiting Western firms that are insuring shipping or trading Russian crude anywhere in the world unless it is below the cap price of $60 a barrel. Um, I, I, I presume the Russians are going to react aggressively to this on the supply side. Uh, does an intervention like this work? I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows whether it will work. It's a peculiar thing, Jim, and I think the ethics of it are at best questionable. What they're trying to do is starve the Russians of money so that their economy hurts and their war machine is uh, defenestrated, if you like. Uh, But at the same time, we don't, in the West, want to shoot ourselves in the foot by depriving ourselves of all Russian oil. So it's like trying to be a little bit virtuous, and I'm not sure that you can be. So we're saying... We don't want to feed Russia's war machine with petrodollars, um, but at the same time, we don't want to uh, cut the supply of Russian oil off completely because that would do us too much economic harm. So it's, it's a fairly weird, contorted logic for me from an ethical standpoint. If you think that you don't want to supply Russia with revenues with which to supply its armies, then you shouldn't buy any Russian oil. Um, but of course, we know that we don't want to do that because that, that would be horrible for, for all of us. The the other point I'd make is that Russian oil, it's called Urals, I think. Um, we have Brent, we have West Texas. Russian oil prices are below this cap anyway. So we wonder just how effective it will be. How the Russians respond, I've, I've no idea. As you say, they should be expected to respond aggressively. Whether it works or not, I have my doubts this half-assed attempt to be a little bit virtuous just looks to me to be, as I say, half-assed. So I'm, I'm a bit of a sceptic. So I suppose the, the overriding theme here in energy markets is basically that the global demand for energy is declining sharply because of economic activity. Um, That's Europe, right. And that, that refers to something I mentioned earlier on, which is this debate between pessimists and optimists about where the energy crisis goes next. This takes many forms. You've got professional energy consultancies in the UK almost uniformly forecasting doom and gloom for next winter. The Economist has taken its line from those energy consultancies and saying that next winter is going to be disastrous, uh, particularly in Europe. And you've got the FT saying, hang on a minute, look, we've got uh, classic economic effects. Anybody that's done basic economics will have heard of substitution and income effects, that when the price of a good goes up, 
people substitute away from it into alternatives. And to the extent that there aren't alternatives, um, they reduce the demand. They, there is demand destruction from two, two channels. And depending on all sorts of factors, which factor dominates doesn't really matter in this case, But because we, we can see in Europe that substitution and income effects are having a massive impact. Over the last couple of months, EU demand for natural gas has fallen 25%. Now, that's not pure demand destruction, because you would then say if it had just simply been companies and individuals, companies in particular, simply saying, well, we we can't afford this gas, we're not going to buy it anymore, and therefore we have to cut, cut our production, you'd have seen at the same time as a falling gas demand like that, collapsing industrial production. But industrial production in the euro area as a whole is at an all-time high. So there are firms out there who are managing to become much, much more efficient. Not all firms. There are some firms that just simply can't substitute away from gas or and or become more efficient. There, one of the German think tanks, an institute called the IFO Institute, surveyed recently all industrial companies in Germany that were gas consumers. And 75% of them said that they had managed to cut their gas production by a lot without any resulting cuts in their output of their finished manufactured goods. And 40% of the companies surveyed said that they can go further, that they've got more efficiencies that they can make without harming industrial production. So, so far, and I stress so far, the data is supportive of the FT's position, is that we're coping with the energy shock much better than many experts thought that we would. And economists would have seen this coming. And it's interesting that the lead in the FT has been taken by their economist, a guy called Chris Giles. And I wonder about the economist's position on this, because there is a curse of the economist's cover, the economist's front page. There have been several over decades where the economist has made these big forecasts that have turned out to be completely wrong. There was one a good while back about its forecast for collapsing oil prices long, long time ago that actually dated the turn in oil prices upwards. Um, And people often take the mickey out of The Economist for that front page splash story, forecasting lower oil prices. And on that day, they started to go up and go up for a long period of time. On the subject of The Economist and the economic outlook, an email that I got today or yesterday uh, was quite definitive, saying that uh, a global recession in 2023 is now a certainty. That's quite a forecast, isn't it, Jim? It certainly is. Given all of the uncertainties out there that we've discussed, it it certainly is a big, big call. I I guess the odds would be slightly in favour of that view at the moment. But uh, you look at the US, it continues to defy expectations. Yes. On the energy crisis, you and I have talked many times about the stuff that another economist at the FT, really, really, another really, really good FT economist called Martin Sandlu, and his latest piece was was taking a, a little bit of a pot shot at Brussels, at the EU. And Brussels is complaining like mad about Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Now, it's a badly named act, as I have said, because it contained many different measures, a lot of which had absolutely nothing to do with inflation, certainly not in the short or medium term. And in but that was just political, political expediency, wasn't it? It's the only way he could get it through by putting that title on it. And that is often the case with the weird goings on in Washington, D.C. Now, contained within this act was a huge raft of subsidies, government subsidies to green tech, companies that produce stuff, kits for the green revolution. 
And Brussels is very upset about this because if, if America was a member of the EU, it would be violating state aid rules. And Brussels thinks that they might even be violating World Trade Organization rules with these uh, subsidies. I don't know. I think that that's a bit of a long shot, personally. I think it's bullshit. And the uh, Brussels wants Biden to think again. Uh, fat chance would be my view. The Americans will not take any direction from Brussels at all. And Sanbu says, and I think this is really interesting because I think it's right, that Brussels should actually get off its backside and do something similar itself. Because as we know from other work that we do, because we are we, we do work in the green tech space, that Europe is falling behind on a whole host of measures in many different ways. The, the length of time that it takes to plan for any kind of wind farm, both onshore and offshore, is, is ridiculous. Uh, the companies are complaining like mad about the environment in, in which they uh, are operating. And Sanbu is saying that what you should do effectively, Mr. Europe, is do what Biden's doing and spend a lot of money on green tech. Government needs to take the lead here and do much, much more, not just about supplying money, although important though that is, but getting a lot of rules and regulations out of the way, get the planning process going properly, a whole raft of stuff that Europe is not doing. So emulate the states rather than criticise them is what Sanbu is saying. And I think that's absolutely right. Europe needs to get with the green revolution. And from a promising start a few years ago, particularly in the area of wind, it seems to have come to a bit of a standstill, Jim, which is very disappointing. Yes, it, it is indeed. And that would be my response to the EU complaints about uh, what Biden is doing Um Europe needs to get up off its backside and really needs to push this agenda. And it's clear across a range of alternative energy development, um, the electrification of the car fleet, all of that stuff will require massive subsidization if it is to ever see the light of day, because the that the economics of many of these developments per se do not stand up. They will need massive support. They will need massive subsidization. And I think we need to move away from thinking about this in terms of price. We need to think about the value um, because, as you know, um, accountants particularly are accused of knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. Uh, The value of pushing this alternative energy agenda will far outweigh any possible costs ultimately. And that's what Europe has got to do. And I have to say, when the Inflation Reduction Act was uh, published some months back. Uh, personally, I applauded it. I thought the stuff in there on alternative and renewable energy was incredibly strong, compelling, and uh, certainly brought Biden up in my estimation. Um, let's see, will it be delivered? But I, I suspect it will. But Europe really, rather than complaining about what the US is doing, does need to get up off its backside and actually do it itself. I just wanted to quickly mention China. We've got stories about them reopening now, abandoning zero COVID in several ways, which I think we both would agree is an an ambiguous good thing. Lots of political questions flow from that, as well as economic consequences. The politics of it are essentially centred around the idea, does does protest now work in China? Um, And people are saying things like, well, just remember Tiananmen Square. We were hopeful. We were hopeful about that. Um, But look what happened next. Look at the um, Arab Spring, what happened after that, nothing very much. So politically and socially in China, be cautious about any conclusions that you reach. But if they are going to reopen, 
That's good news for that world trade thing that we were talking about earlier on, because one of the sources of, of world trade falling is China, Chinese economic weakness. So that hopefully is coming to an end. The downside, of course, is that it complicates yet again the inflation picture. And uh, if China comes back to the world economy, then demand for commodities is going to go up again. And you might see uh, oil prices and other commodity prices rising again, complicating the task of central banks. Another factor com uh, complicating central bank uh, policies going forward and whether interest rates will rise and how much they will rise and all that kind of stuff was contained in a warning by the Bank for International Settlements this morning. The BIS uh, is headquartered in Switzerland, and if you like, it's the central bank's central bank. And it's got a very good track record on a number of the warnings that it's issued over the years. I think it was one of the entities that saw the financial crisis coming, in a way. Uh, and it is said this morning that the sort of thing that we saw in the UK a few weeks ago with a blow-up in an obscure part of the pension fund industry, something called liability-driven investing, that was financial stress in the non-bank sector. So it's still the financial sector, but it's outside traditional banks. And that's the sector that they're very worried about. They think that that portends more stress, that as interest rates go up further, you'll get similar developments popping up in unexpected places of the non-bank sector. And that will mean, they say, bailouts, just as the Bank of England had to bail out the pension fund sector effectively last month, that that sort of thing will have to be repeated could be repeated. It's a warning rather than an explicit forecast. And that will complicate things because if you are bailing out bits of your financial system at the same time as you're raising rates and doing quantitative tightening, reversing the money printing that you did during the pandemic and financial crisis, uh, what you've got various factors acting against each other in opposition to each other. And it means it just gets horrendously more complicated for the central banks. So that's going to be something that I suspect we're going to be talking about a lot uh, in over the next, gosh, for a long period of time, I suspect. But I want to end what I'm going to say, because we're running out of time, with a question for you, Jim. Have you read The Economist this week? I have. Did you read the article about sex? I did. What did you think? Magnificent. Thank you, Jim. It reminds me of that very old joke about doctors at a conference on sexual health. And the keynote speaker on sexual health stood up and said, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure. And then he sat down again. <laughs> Chris, on that note, good luck. Take it easy, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.